Hello? Who's this? Who's this? Oh, I know your voice. You sound a lot like that gaming woman from Radio 3. I do, huh? Wait a minute. You're Louise Blaine, right? Oh my god, am I talking to THE Louise Blaine? I can't believe this. You've got a very sexy voice. Thank you. So you, you're a big gaming fan? Why don't you tell me who you are? Someone who would kill to make a Scream podcast. Welcome to Hello Sydney, a limited podcast series supported by Paramount that cuts deep into one of the most iconic horror franchises ever made. Across the next few episodes, we'll be slicing and dicing our way through each movie in the Scream franchise in anticipation of the brand new Scream coming to cinemas in January 2022. I'm Anna Bogutska, writer and broadcaster, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, journalist and broadcaster Louise Blaine. Hi there. And producer and podcaster Mike Munzer. Hello. And this week, we'll be taking a trip to Tinseltown to discuss Scream 3 from the year 2000. Just a quick warning to say that we'll be spoiling Scream 3, so if you haven't seen it, do check it out before listening to our discussion. Mike and Louise, my first question for you both... If you could take on the voice of anyone, with the help of Scream 3's magic voice transformer thingy, whose voice would you take on? Morgan Freeman. Because what a voice, right? And then I could just just narrate things for people, you know? So, this sounds weird. It's going to sound weird. But I wish I had the voice of, you know, the actress Mercedes McCambridge, who did the voice of the demon in The Exorcist? (laughs) That is so specific. That's amazing. She like ate loads of eggs and did loads of things and basically just made those noises into a microphone. And could you imagine just (laughs) having that voice to do a podcast in? Can you imagine to have that voice ordering pizza? (laughs) What what an excellent day for a pizza. (laughs) I think it would be very important that I would have my voice most of the time. Okay. But then just switch that on using the... Because that would terrify people. Halfway through a conversation or halfway through a show on Radio 3, just switch up. (laughs) Perfect. It's my selection. What about you, Anna? I would go with Alan Rickman. Oh. I think he had one of the best, most unique voices in film history. I love him so much. You can just... I, I would just read out the phone book. I know phone books don't exist anymore, but I would just read out tweets. Yes just prank call people and read them tweets and they'd probably listen for a good two hours before they hung up or just terms and conditions ingredients <gasps> lists yes. on like toothpaste and stuff people would listen to that so we're going into our discussion of the first actual scream of the new millennium yeah. scream 3 which came out in the year 2000 Mike for anyone who may have not revisited scream 3 as recently as we have oh god can you try and summarize scream 3 in 20 seconds or less And your time begins now. Scream 3 takes place in Hollywood during the production of Stab 3 Return to Woodsboro, in which a load of actors are being killed off mercilessly in the same style as they are being killed off in the film. Meanwhile, Sidney Prescott gets dragged back into the action as it all links back to her past. Very good. (laughs) Amazing. Yes. Amazing. So this is... The really, really interesting thing, I think, to start with with Scream 3 is that this is the first of the Scream films that is not written by Kevin Williamson. Mm. So what's what feels new and different about Scream 3? I guess it's in some ways it's kind of fitting. Obviously, this is written by Aaron Kruger, and I think the difference is that this movie isn't about teenagers, is it? This is an entire cast of grown-ups in this film, which is the first time we've had that in the Scream franchise, I suppose, so far. I think what's going into grown-ups is something that as your audience ages with you that's exactly what you want Mm. and that's obviously what we're going to expect from the new Scream as well it's suddenly everyone's a grown-up and obviously there's another generation there as well to kind of balance it out but it is that kind of more grown-up thing the switch to Hollywood as well is obviously super meta because it's like we've gone from the stage but now we're in Hollywood and there's now literally fake versions of Woodsboro for these fake cast members well real cast members of of, of real the real characters from the initial Woodsboro incident. Although I am quite confused as why they're making Stab 3, but it looks like they're using all the sets from the original Stab. I'm kind of intrigued as to how Stab 3 runs. 
Right, and because Stab 1 was based on the real events of Scream, Stab 2 presumably was based on the real events of Scream 2, so Stab 3 must be the first one in the in this made-up franchise that is fictional too, right? Yes. So they'd have made this as a fictional film, and I think, like you say, Louise, it's we're bringing back all the sets from the first film because the story of this fictional third film is Return to Woodsboro, isn't it? Um, so there's an interesting thing there where they're dragging up the past, and I suppose that's a big theme of this movie too, right? That it's revisiting the past and Sydney's past and uncovering things that we didn't know about in her backstory. Yes, which is one of the rules of kind of the the, the final third instalment of any good trilogy, right? And will be a big running theme throughout Scream 3, but the fictional Stab 3. Also, what's interesting about about that being the, the setting of this film is that now the actors who are playing the fictional real life characters <laughs> this is going to get very it's confusing get very by the way mad and very confusing. <laughs> they become also characters in and of themselves so they're obviously played by by actors but they're playing actors and they're playing these almost comedic versions of of hollywood actors who are playing real life people that they get to interact with which is always weird it's weird for performers and it's weird for for the real people themselves. In this story, Dewey is a consultant on Stab 3, so he's very much merged with the the fictional retelling of the biggest tragedy of his life, right? So there's an element there as well of like, are we, is he or they also monetizing their past in a different way? And it they become a big source of comedy because, let's face it, Hollywood is funny. <laughs> Acting is funny. Even with death. You know, the screen movies have always cleverly balanced horror and comedy, but this one has p- particularly a lot of funny moments, doesn't it? Those characters have always been very vague, erring into comedy. You yeah. know, even as we were talking about in Scream, Dewey is a kind of over the top character. That yeah. Everyone reacts around Sydney who stays the same. But I think in this, everyone's kind of cranked up again. So you've got. Gail Weathers, who is now, you know, she's progressed through her career, she's very successful, but she's now almost a gentle parody of herself from who she was before. Everyone is turned up to 11 in this movie. They are. And everyone's relationships are turned up to 11. So her, you know, her and Dewey's on-off relationship has is continuing its hilarity. And I think everything being cranked up means that, yes, you still recognise these characters, but you kind of appreciate the almost over-the-top way that their lives have progressed. Yes. While poor Sydney, you know, I think it's important to address her. Mm-hmm. She's sitting, she's she's left the world behind. She has locked herself somewhere in some hills with just her dog, bless her. She's mm-hmm. just, she's locking everything up. She's locking gates. She's And she's uh, now doing trauma help on the phone without mm-hmm. even giving her name. You know, she's very much regressed. And I think... We, we barely see her until sort of later on in the film because she's just noped out. So yeah. it's this balance of the seriousness of what would have happened of her sadness, but also everyone else being in Hollywood where everything is completely just just that airing into slight ridiculous territory because it understands that the whole concept itself is absurd. <laughs> yes, Hollywood <laughs> is ridiculous, right? Um, and that's what's really fun about it. We talked about how in Scream 2, we we expanded the world right from this sort of small town to this big university campus. And it goes one step further here, doesn't it? I mean, again, we the opening scene kind of expands on that scale even more. So in Scream 2, we had that movie theatre. In Scream 3, we start with kind of aerial shots of LA and traffic jams and the big Hollywood sign on the hill so it's like it's really opened up and uh, and we have Cotton stuck in traffic while his girlfriend Christine is is being pursued at home by a killer right so it's kind of already we're sort of going to different locations with different characters um, how did you guys find that opening kill that opening scene compared to the first two it's a very good callback to the start of the Scream franchise mm-hmm. with the phone call by a stranger in this case also for the first time a female voice right yeah. so Cotton is kind of you know seduced by this random woman who's calling him and and Cotton is a is a fascinating really prickly character who I think has been seeded so well throughout the screen franchise in general from the fir- very first film especially in the second one where he plays a, a bigger role and this one where he's kind of got everything he wanted he's famous he's got his own show 100% Cotton by the way great it's name for perfect. a show great. Oh, it's so good ideal but 
now he's become the target of the very thing that he's used to build his career and his life. So, um, why don't you tell me who you are? Ooh, you're a naughty boy, Cotton. Now, what would your girlfriend say? What makes you think I have a girlfriend? I know you do. I'm right outside her bathroom door. And it also sets up a really important technological element of Scream 3. The fact that now the kind of the voice transformer, let's go with that. The voice transformer can mimic anyone's voice. Yeah. So Ghostface now is literally not just anyone you know, but can be anyone. Yes. So Cotton is fooled and and he rushes back to his house to save his girlfriend. But at the same time, his girlfriend is also getting the same kind of phone calls from Ghostface, who is masquerading as Cotton. So by the time that Cotton arrives, actually he gets plunked in the head by his own girlfriend because she thinks that he's going to murder her. And it's this pitting people against one another that will run through the entirety of Scream 3 that is set up quite perfectly and comically in this very first scene. Ghostface now is kind of making other people do the dirty work for him throughout this manipulation of the voices and tricking people instead of necessarily doing all the killing himself or herself. Mm-hmm. And it's and it's again emphasizing that idea of performativity, right? We're in this Hollywood world where everyone is being played by somebody else. So Gail Weathers is being followed around throughout the whole film by Jennifer, played by Parker Posey, who is playing Gail Weathers in Stab, and they all have their little doubles. And even the killer is performing as other people. At one mm-hmm. scene, he's being Sydney over the phone and another scene he's being Cotton so yeah there is this element of everyone is playing someone else in this film right and it moves forward tick it's always constantly saying we're going to change things because we know that the world has changed so even though it's been four years since Scream for Mm -hmm. this one in 2000 the addition of that new voice transformer it's like well this is just part of the tech moving forward although I will say that the tech moving forward and then there progressively being a fax machine scene a <laughs> hilarious fax machine scene a Phenomenal. little bit later on it always it always wants to progress with tech even mm-hmm. if that feels like it takes a step back while Ghostface can be anyone yeah 2000 was that kind of funny sort of era wasn't it where the internet was becoming a thing, obviously, like in everyone's home by this point. Everyone probably had their dial-up modems and everything at the ready and emails and stuff. So that kind of plays a part. They talk about keeping the scripts off the internet and all of that. And that was a response to what really happened in Scream 2. Um, but then obviously, yeah, you've got things that are really dated, like the fax machine and everything as and well. It's been used extremely well. That's probably one of the funniest and best kind of kill scenes as well in yeah. the film. Where it also taps into this obsession with knowing knowing what happens because the character the actor who gets killed in in that fax machine scene is because he just needs to know what happened next that's all it is Ah! who will survive is it Jennifer Tom Angelina Dewey Gale the killer will give mercy to Yeah, that scene is so funny, isn't it? Like this idea that the killer is going to save only one of them and he's going to reveal who it is via facts. And I think it was, you know, this movie is possibly the most meta of the of the Scream films so far. And there are so many in-jokes about not just horror, not just filmmaking, but about making the Scream movies too. At this point in time, Scream was such a big deal that people were trying to find out spoilers and things were getting leaked on the internet. So uh, Scream 3 had a number of different endings with different killer reveals in order to stop it from being leaked onto the internet and rewrites were happening all the time and new script pages were being faxed to cast members on like a daily basis so you know i think that what we're getting here there are jokes all the way through about scripts changing faxes coming through all of this kind of thing it's all you know this what was going on in the meta narrative of the scream trilogy is happening in the narrative of these movies which kind of makes so much more sense now because of what spoiler culture is because of how careful we must all be uh, both as journalists and just as, as the public to be aware of spoilers to not get spoiled just how angry people get about getting any sort of information beforehand but also how rapidly we want to find out what happens next who did what and where our characters end up yeah this was about i think you know Scream 1 and 2 were so popular that by the time Scream 3 came out there was so much hype, there was so much excitement there was so much speculation I even remember, you know, 
before Scream 3 coming out, going online and looking at the stills and looking at the images and the clips that had been released and trying to figure out, oh, what's going to happen? Who's going to die? Who might be the killer? In that same way that we are discussing now with Scream 2022. Like, Mm -hmm. oh my God, there's pictures of Stu's house. What does it mean? And this was when Scream as a franchise really hit that stride of the mystery, the speculation, the fandom, the community around it and people trying to figure out what's going to happen, who's going to be the killer, in what way is it going to link to Mm. Sydney and probably Sydney's mother, let's face it, yes. you know. So it's a it's a really interesting moment in time, I think, at this point. If YouTube had really existed in the way that it exists now, or even yes. existed in like two thousand and seven or something, at the time of the release of Scream Three, it would have probably been a wash with videos and explainers and over over explainers of what the trailer means what the press release means what does this interview with Nev Campbell mean like all of these different things trying to piece together the information based on what's out there it understands our obsession with narrative and it understands our obsession with horror movie narrative really and the fact that we like things to make sense so it constantly plays with those and those rewrites of the script were happening even within Scream 3 it understands that as you were saying Anna those those extra rules of the third in a trilogy making everything you know you don't know what you know because we're going to change everything and the, the idea of it's probably now time to sort of revisit Randy and his reintroduction of rules though right Randy, back from the dead to lecture us one last time on the rules of horror. <laughs> what a hero. What a hero. Yeah, I, I, and it's great. It was great to see him pop up, even in sort of videotape form, right? Uh, yeah, like you say, to explain the rules of the trilogy. So this idea that somebody's making not just another sequel, but they're making a concluding chapter. Because mm-hmm. at the time, this was going to be the, the final screen film. And it was very much marketed as that. In the trailer, they said, you know, welcome to the final act. And it was all very much about rounding everything off, wrapping everything up. And uh, one of the main points, you know, Randy says any main character can die. That's a that was a big thing, and also that you know the past will come back to haunt you. That whatever you think you know about the past, forget it. There'll be some sort of twist or revelation where what you thought was the case actually wasn't right and so yeah randy provides that very handy bit of exposition midway into the film yeah i actually completely believe from a character point of view that randy would do something like that in fact i think he probably recorded several tapes for severed <laughs> alternate setups yeah. depending on what the outcome was he probably recorded a tape in case he got to marry sydney he probably recorded a tape in case he got to marry sydney and then he died yeah like yep. so many variations. The Randy tapes would be a great podcast where someone just imitates Jamie Kennedy and oh, <laughs> like yes. reads out all the tapes that Randy probably recorded before his death. You mentioned, Mike, before that this is a film a lot about doubles, especially because we see not just our core characters, but also the actors who play them. And we get to spend a lot of time with them and they're interacting with each other all the time. And it's interesting to note that the key... Sydney, Dewey and Gail have been recast in Stab 3 mm. with mm-hmm. new actors. There is no David Trimmer playing <laughs> yes. Dewey. It is now Tom Prince played by Mike, Matt Kiesler. And what do you think of the of the actors in Scream 3 who are playing <laughs> Sydney, Dewey and Gail in Stab 3? Oh my God. This is like one of those <laughs> Russian doll things, right? I, I'm so confused. But you're asking me what I think of the characters who are actors in Screen 3, right? The characters who are actors who are playing (laughs) the characters we love from Scream. Oh my god. Yeah, I love them. I think this is great. Because I think, again, the setup that we we haven't mentioned is that Cotton, Weary, was was due to do a cameo in Stab 3, wasn't he? And that's why he, that's part of the reason why he was murdered, because this killer's MO is that he is murdering all of the actors in Stab 3 in the order they died in the movie. So Cotton was going to be the opening scene kill of Stab 3. So he became the opening scene kill of Scream 3. Then so we're... Cotton is the Drew Barrymore of Stab 3. Of Stab 3, yes. yes. And Scream 3, I guess. Right. So then what happens is... <laughs> then what happens is we're introduced to this other group of... Like, all of the rest of the actors in Stab 3 because it's like, oh, this means they're all in trouble, doesn't it? So we're introduced to, yeah, the guy that plays Dewey who seems a bit arrogant and not very nice. Then we're introduced to uh, this new uh, up-and-coming actress who won the part of Sydney Prescott played by Emily Mortimer she seems very kind of sweet and timid and then we've got Jennifer Jolie I believe her character's name is who is the actress played by Parker Posey who is playing Gail Weathers who's quite the character isn't she Gail Weathers oh my god uh, listen I, I, 
I know we've never met, and I, I don't mind you never returning my calls, but I have to tell you, after two films, I feel like I am in your mind. Mm, well, that would explain my constant headaches. I think the multiple layers of we already enjoy Gail Weathers, Gail Weathers' character, mm-hmm. but I think enjoying her via Parker Posey is <laughs> one of the best things in the world. Like when she's actually, I think when Gail meets her for the first time, when Gail she, meets Gail, when Gail meets Gail, she's wearing that incredible like highlighter green full suit, which was the one from the first one when we saw her for the first time. Yes. So it's all these little ticks for us going we're seeing you for the first time wearing the thing you wore when we saw you for the very, very first time. So it's even those nice little touches. But also the sparring between those two is brilliant because Gail now takes no shit from anyone, even less shit than she ever took before, really, (laughs) um, which is saying something. And I think the interaction between all those characters, and I think Gail's bitchiness um, and sort of her fury at the of being not part of an investigation or not part of things, I think, is very relatable for the Gale that we know. So while we're seeing all this over-the-top stuff and Parker being very much Parker, it's it, it's still centred around these characters that we do know. And especially, Gale is especially angry because she literally wrote the she, book on it and no it. one called her. But this, this also, let's say, God, do we call her Parker? Do we call her fake Gale? So, fail. Fake Gale is fail. fail. <laughs> <laughs> so... Parker's version of Gale and how she constantly tries to do that very actor thing of trying to understand Gale in front of Gale and to her face is the most delightful comedic sparring that this film has. Mm -hmm. It is Parker doing everything, mocking actors. And Courtney Cox here is just in those comedic scenes wonderfully restrained compared to her. Absolutely, yeah. She kind of, she is, and actually she becomes the, the, the warmer character in a way because Jennifer, Parker Posey's character, is so extreme. She's like this magnification of Gail Weathers. She's like this cartoon version of Gail Weathers. Gail Weathers actually has grown a bit as a person, I think, and she's a little bit more subdued and a little bit less overtly monstrous maybe than she was in Scream 1 and definitely less monstrous than Jennifer is in this, you know? So I think there's an interesting dynamic between them. Her MO throughout most of the film is that, right, if this killer is killing all of the actors in the order they die in the script, I'm just going to harass Gail Weathers and follow her around everywhere because if the killer really wants to kill the real Gail Weathers, she won't kill the fake Gail Weathers. So I'll just stick with the real Gail Weathers so that she can die instead of me. It's called method acting. (laughs) There are investigations at the movie studio Mm -hmm. to find the 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 origins of Maureen Prescott's picture which is now being left at the murder scene. So we we do have this added element that we've never really had Mm -hmm. from Scream, which is these extra whodunit layers yes. so it's yes. like they're being left with pictures that's never happened before because before it was just a clues. slasher but now we have clues now we're going investigating which kind of then means they go into the uh, the movie studio and they find Carrie Fisher just hanging out like it's it, I, I love these scenes because they are so they've taken everything and just it's just that cranking up it's just that making yes. things that slight bit ridiculous where you go of course there's Carrie Fisher while they investigate this and they you know it's and that double act between them while they do it of trying to offer more money it's just a lovely thing that's a good point actually to bring up Maureen Prescott who you know if we if we think about it in the chronology of the whole story is actually the origin for the, our killers from Scream 1, Billy and Stu, specifically Billy, who is very angry at Maureen. But here we get to, we never actually see Maureen, um, aside from a, a photograph in the background in Scream 1, but she's always mentioned and brought back constantly. And here she's very much a part of the mystery as well. We'll find out new things about Maureen. We find out about the secret past that she had as an actress. And for the very first time as well, Sydney actually sees visions of her mother, kind of these fantastical, phantasmagorical visions of her of her dead mother. So what do you guys make of the the reintroduction of Maureen Prescott as the centre of the mystery of Scream 3? I think it's really intriguing. I love this, that 
that, like you said, Anna, there's almost sort of two separate sort of film genres going in here with this um, with this story, and we're sort of we're going away a little bit from s- traditional slashes. And on the one hand, we've got this killer who is leaving clues for the cops. That is, and they say in in the film, it's very Hannibal Lecter, it's very Seven, and we're introduced to these two detectives, this pair of detectives who are solving the crime. One of which, um, played by the amazing Patrick Dempsey, right, uh, Detective Kincaid. Yes. What a dish. And <laughs> creepy dish. Creepy dish. Creepy dish. Creepy like, dish. Creepy he is dish. of course a suspect, you know, as as yes, everyone is. Um but so we've got that very kind of traditional procedural in the way that like when we discussed in episode one about that wave of early nineties procedural thrillers like The Silence of the Lambs, like Seven, it's kind of evoking that, right? And we're uncovering the backstory of Marine Prescott. And then at the same time, we've got this strange, almost ghost story going on with Sydney Prescott, right? Where she is, her trauma is literally being dredged up and, you know, and recreated in this Hollywood studio. And she's starting to hallucinate. Um, she's starting to see visions of her dead mother, who is, there's a really creepy moment when her mother is kind of stood in the window, sort of like yes. pouring at the window. Um, and there's some amazing stuff that goes on when she returns to the set of her house. And we don't quite know what's real and what's not. I think that the way they portray Maureen, because she's always been, I suppose, a sort of ghost of this series, right? She's always been there in the background. Um, and I think they do some really interesting things with that in this movie yeah i think adding those supernatural elements as well again changes our rules Mm -hmm. i think we're always thinking about what scream's rules have been and it has always felt very 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 grounded and as we were talking about in scream 2 you and i were quite sure that ghostface was definitely there on the stage meanwhile we know that maureen is not there in those houses and she's not Mm. there she is very much she is gone and she is dead instead and it means that we are left with these we're in almost a, as you're saying a completely different type of film yeah but even the type of imagery is it's very this it's it's, it's very bold it's nothing mm-hmm. there's nothing subtle about it no you know it yeah. is and it is almost quite it's it's throwbacks to multiple you, you kind of look at it and you go 70s and 80s you think mm-hmm. about that kind of horror of just a ghost at a window looking yes. horrific and those are all they again those are those are horror movie hallucinations that she's yes. having she's not having just having hallucinations she's having genre hallucinations <laughs> which I think is really important to say because we understand that too and we're like you're, you, you don't see that love it's she's not, having gothic yellow hallucinations exactly. yeah, her, her, yeah. They're very, of course because they're Sydney Prescott's hallucinations what do you guys think of the way Hollywood itself is used as a set, as a backdrop? We talked about how in Scream 2 they made such good use of theatre spaces and recording studios and that kind of thing. You've got some amazing sequences here, right, where we are on the movie set of Stab 3 that I think is used really effectively. Well, I think it's very interesting because this is perhaps a film that addresses quite directly this big conversation around the impact of of on-screen violence, on real-life violence. And I think it's important to know that this came out shortly after the very big transformational cultural moment of the Columbine massacre. And there is a scene where we see several moments of the behind the scenes of Hollywood and especially of horror Hollywood, very much kind of embodied by Lance Hendrickson in his role as John Milton, the director, right? And obviously that's a very clear reference to John Milton, John Milton, the author of um, the poet of Paradise Lost, which is all about fall from grace, Mm -hmm. right? And this in a way is that, but is it for Hollywood? Is it for... Um, horror movies, is it for Maureen, is it for her characters? It's kind of a lot about that. And they speak directly in this little circle of producers about the importance of how to portray violence and kind of how far to go. So it's always directly talking about that. And then there's the behind the screens violence, which is the real violence that we see. Um, And I think Scream 3 kind of lovingly pokes fun at that. But it does take on a different taste watching it now. Rewatching it for this podcast earlier this week, the conversations around what happened to Maureen Prescott and how she was treated in her brief stint in Hollywood and how disposable a young actress was take on a completely different meaning now. It was in the 70s. Everything was different. I was well known for my parties. Men knew what they were. It was for girls like her to meet men. Men who could get them parts if they made the right impression. And there's like real life horrors that were going on and are still going on and are kind of referenced in Scream 3 that are there perhaps for a different kind of audience that are kind of more in the know nods for people. 
and then essentially I think what the film is trying to get at is that the real violence happens off screen the stuff that is portrayed and in a really maximalist exuberant really visual way is performance the real terror comes afterwards and it's not at all influenced or really has that much to do and is much much scarier than the stuff that we see on screen which it then sort of perpetuates with its own violence right so it balances that and says I mean for the first time we have Ghostface literally throws a knife up a flight of stairs which hits Dewey in the middle of the head with the handle and that's that's silly funny violence yeah slapstick and, and joke it's, and it's saying yeah. Look how funny this is. This is absurd. And it doesn't take much for to make our scary ghost ways not scary because of this is still violence. Mm-hmm. So I think that is actually a very, very clever balance of every time we maybe we don't see quite as much stab, knives entering flesh because that's not what, as you say, we need to have things be scary. That's mm. that's not what's scary in Hollywood. That's not the worst element. Definitely. And I think, you know, the film, all of the screen films up until this point had faced censorship. They were all, you know, too gory to get an R rating and they had to have moments cut here and there because Wes Craven loves a bit of blood, doesn't he? He loves it. Um, but uh, this movie especially, I think, was, was heavily censored due to it real life events like Columbine murders and everything and I think they do a really good job of working around that because they make the film about violence on screen and the effect it has on audiences so that's part of the text but also adding extra elements like this whodunit mystery like these ghostly elements you know it's it's not just a slasher in the way the first two are so I think it kind of it acknowledges that it's going to be different and I think it works around it in quite interesting ways in that regard One of my favourite moments in Scream 3, and one of my favourite moments in the whole trilogy, actually, is the scene where Sidney Prescott wanders onto the empty set of Stab 3 Return to Woodsboro. So what she's looking at is the set of her childhood, right? And she wanders around... So it really kind of taps into that nostalgia, but it's also really emphasising the way in which this film is about trauma, right? It's about Sydney's trauma and about the way in which Hollywood is exploiting that trauma. Uh, wandering around the set of her house, but with bloodstains all over it and a body in a bag, which is supposed to be her mother. And then, of course, this is where sort of the psychological and the supernatural merge because the, the body bag suddenly stands up because Sydney is attacked by something or someone. Is it her imagination? Is she having visions of her dead mother again? Is that actually the killer with a voice-changing device? You know, there are lots of ambiguities, right, deliberately so. Uh, what do you guys make of that whole sequence? We, when we watch Scream, we want to be reminded of the first time we watched the first Scream. So <gasps> I think, it, So I think it's a really nice callback mm. of, you know where you are, you know where Sydney is, and you know that even if the, though this is create, recreated on a Hollywood backlot, you're back in Woodsboro too. Mm-hmm. So I really like that. So I love the music there. I love everything Nev does there. It's just the fact that you know where she's come from, you know where she's been and you know where, where she is now. And it's almost like when she's, again, once she's interacting with Ghostface and the chase is happening, much like it happened in her own house, and the fact that the door is still the same design, that she shuts the door and it stops the door from opening, which I think in one of the audio commentaries, they're like, yeah, we had to build that in because no one builds a house yeah. like that. No, no, one, no <laughs> one builds a house that doesn't work like that. And it's such a unique like scream thing as well. Yeah, it's, and you're like, oh, I know this. I know how this works. And you've got the swipey knife noises. But then the rules break because she opens a door and it's just a drop because it's fake. I love that Which moment. is just such a lovely thing of, oh, you thought you were there too. We know you thought you were there. So even you understanding the geography of a fake house from two movies ago, it's like it's ticking every single box. So I love that whole scene. It just celebrates everything about Scream in a new way. It, it makes it even more meta. And I think it adds an additional layer of, for Sydney, who isn't as present in Scream 3 but the the kind of the limited screen time that she has in this film are those very impactful scenes and she kind of really chooses to separate herself from everyone that, but then when she's pulled back we're enjoying go back to Woodsboro and to the original setting of the first film but she doesn't mm. it's not fun and games for Sydney so it's kind of that suffering as well of like why is she being pulled back into the same story that she's tried so hard to escape from and to distance herself from you really feel kind of that moment and the fact that it's that it's about her mother that it's these 
bringing up these complicated feelings that they're being visualized for the very first time in the franchise as well is quite there's a lot of there's a lot of meaty traumatic stuff going on for Sydney in this episode which I think you know where this the last entry in the franchise where this a trilogy this would have been a really good moment for her to to end her story she gets an amazing ending mm-hmm. I think the final moments of her which we'll talk about are, are, are wonderful as well yeah and I think and we've always talked about for the, the first two as well haven't we that Sydney always no matter what other like craziness is going on she's always playing it straight and she's always in this very kind of um, tragic story and this is really emphasised in this isn't it where you've got her stuff which is the really genuinely scary harrowing stuff and I think this might be my favourite Nev Campbell performance as well In so far I think she's brilliant in this I think you know you can really see the the growth and you can see everything she's been through through very little that she does I think she's she's effortlessly brilliant in this um, but you've got all of her moments that are like fairly few and far between compared to all of the like Scooby-Doo antics right with Gail and Dewey and their doubles and everything else but I think it makes for a fun balance because you get this you know genuine trauma and, and that kind of stuff with Sydney and then running around mansions and going through bookcases into secret rooms and corridors and like we're in some sort of murder mystery uh, you know with some of the other stuff elsewhere I'm just happy that Sydney doesn't get another bad or bad like boyfriend in this century. Oh, she's still wearing the Greek letters. Have you yes. noticed? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Oh. R.I.P. Derek. R.I.P. Derek. <laughs> basic, basic Derek. Basic but lovely Derek. So let's do as we've done with each screen movie and spend a bit of time talking about who the killer turns out to be and their motive. Right. So in Scream Three, we get one killer, and that's it. Not two. It's Roman Bridger, the director of Stab Three, uh, who also turns out to be Sydney's long lost brother. Did you guys? Do you remember when you first watched this? Did you guess that it was going to be Roman? I thought it was going to be Detective Dishu. Did you? <laughs> yeah, Dishu Detective. He even had those screenwriting books on his, yes. on his desk that, that Sydney was reading at one point. I was like, you're definitely a killer. And Absolutely he was so obsessed with Sydney. He has that, um, Patrick Dempsey has this beautiful, very eerie delivery of one line specifically where he's like, where is she? Yeah, and I love them. One of my favourite cheesy lines from him is, Hey detective, Sydney goes. Hey detective, what's your favourite scary movie? And he goes, My life. And <laughs> like this guy. She doesn't need to respond with this... the me too, which she does. <laughs> yeah, this guy is amazing. But yeah, no, Roman didn't see it coming. And then not only is he the killer, he turns out to be Sydney Prescott's half brother, right? which is the most Hollywood of twists. <laughs> and I am here for it. Give me long lost siblings. Give me sibling but... rivalry. Give me, like, self-absorbed, insult-like screenwriters. Yes, Roman, I hate you. But not just that. Also ones who were the puppet master for the entire the entire ignition for the series. Mm-hmm. He was like, oh, you know, Billy didn't take much yes. pushing into this. I just had to show him this. I mean, I did love the fact that there's an extra layer to that, which was just, again, once again, there's those revisiting of rules you don't know. You mm-hmm. didn't know this. And it's just like, actually, Billy just needed a little push. That yes. Was it. That's all he needed. And that's just a lovely, because he it it's very clever in the fact it doesn't say that he did it. Mm-hmm. You know, it still worked the way we think it worked. It just worked that way because of that tiny little, just a nudge in the murderous direction. That's right. Billy had it all anyway. So he was... Basically, she, uh, Maureen Prescott got pregnant with Roman during her time in Hollywood, right? When she was essentially sexually assaulted by people in Hollywood is, what's, very implied. is, yeah. is what's implied, right? Uh, and he grew up not knowing who his real mother was. Then when he came to find her, he tracked her down in Woodsboro. She shunned him. She didn't want to have a relationship with him, according to him, right? And that was what triggered this whole thing. Like you say, he persuaded Billy and Stu to kill her. And that's where this whole thing began. And he is, is he not the most pathetic, probably most hateful? of all the killers we've met so Absolutely. far. He's awful <laughs> in a brilliant way. And you also know? the way that we meet him even before we find out that he is the killer and, you know, the, the jigsaw of the entire Scream franchise, really, yeah. the, the puppet master, he, he's also extremely hateable. He throws tantrums. Yes. He is so entitled. He is pathetic. He's kind of a parody of what um, non-film industry people imagine that Hollywood directors, screenwriters behave like. Yes. And he's only what? Like, he's only just turning 30 in the film oh my as God, well. He's obsessed. So, yeah. <laughs> he would have a, instead of a sweet 16, like a sweet 30th, but his idea of a sweet 30th would be to do like a, a bloodshed, a murder of all his cast. Yeah. 
Yeah, and there's just an amazing takedown from Sydney, isn't there, when she's like, just what does she say she just says like oh god damn it shut up i've heard all this shit before like she just just she just she has zero respect for him throughout that entire final sequence yeah it's amazing i also think though that she's heard like she's been there she's heard the killer monologue before yeah so not only is he hateful and disgusting just a childlike brat she's like i have been here while someone justifies and explains everything in a dramatic voice just get on with it (laughs) just just do something you're gonna pay for the life you stole from me sid for the mother and for the family and for the stardom and god damn it everything you have that should have been mine god why don't you stop your whining and get on with it i've heard this shit before stop i do love the kind of roman roman's whole motivation confirms that the entire scream franchise is essentially a franchise about mummy issues Yes. yes in all different shades as so many of the best horror slashes have been throughout time right but yeah it's so true it's it's the mummy issues return yeah and they have this really fun showdown where don't they where again we're led to believe because it's the final chapter of a trilogy is Sydney Prescott going to die and we actually see her get shot mm-hmm. um, and then there's a reveal where she's wearing a bulletproof vest of course but that's a moment right and also she gets properly beaten up like, yes I'd forgotten on the rewatch exactly how badly beat I mean it's he hits her head off the bar. Mm-hmm. Like it's re- it gets really brutal because you at that point are like, this is it. This could be where she dies because mm-hmm. this is horrible. And I'm feeling how horrible this is because, mm-hmm. again, what we've been talking about is it's that scrappy brawling, which was at the end of Scream 2 as well. It's that yes. desperation. No one's artfully raising knives anymore. People are using furniture and yes. pushing people and crunching things. And it's that where you think, oh, gosh, this is it for Sydney. I can't. I can't watch this happen to Sydney. Mm-hmm. And thankfully we don't have to. Thankfully we don't have to. And then there's also that brilliant moment where, you know, Randy said in his rules, the killer might be superhuman. And of course, he's not superhuman, but he's wearing a bulletproof vest. So <laughs> Dewey has to shoot him about eight times in before, head, before Sydney head. reminds him exactly, <laughs> shoot him in the head. And we mentioned kind of Sydney getting a wonderful ending for her character before. What do you guys make of the ending? And, you know, considering that at the time... We know now that this isn't true. This isn't true because there's Scream Four and there will be Scream Twenty Twenty Two coming out shortly. But what did you think of the ending of this of this film? I think going back to what we were talking about of it, Sydney's world at the beginning when she was isolated, we kind of go back to that world. So the less ridiculous, it's much more rural. We're out in the we're out in the countryside. We've left Hollywood behind. So I think we've left all that behind and she's back in this house. She's back with her dog and we see her being walking freely and then we see her leaving a door open. And I think watching it swing open is back to we've we've left everything absurd behind and it's just about Sydney and it's just about Sydney's progression. And I think knowing that that's where it could have ended entirely, it was the happiest ending we could have had for her. Just being happy. Just I'll just leave that open. That door can open and I'll go and watch a movie with with people. So she's not isolated anymore. She's not at the end of Scream 2. She's not left standing in the middle of a quadrangle on her own with sad music. She it's just it's her surviving and I think it's the survival of Sydney so it's a it is a lovely thing but obviously we know she can't escape that's it I think it's a perfect ending as well obviously for the time considering that this was supposed to be the final chapter and it, it emphasizes everything that we've been mentioning this whole time which is the screen movies are about Sydney Prescott right they're not about the killer it doesn't really glamorize the killers in the way that so many other slasher movies do like we've just said right the killer in this is a pathetic horrible little boy you know none of us like him none of us barely even remember him this is sydney's story and i think that beautifully simple image no words no dialogue just a door swinging open sydney looking out at that door and rather than locking it bolting it closing the curtains whatever else she just leaves it open and she chills out to go and watch a movie and i think it it really is bringing in a beautifully simple way bringing her arc to a close which is so simple and it's the fact that she like you mentioned louise that she is leaving the door open just for other people as well to be able to get in Mm. not to get all poetic and on screen three but she's letting people in yeah and that's always been from the very first from the very first movie from the very first moment it's been a big thing for Sydney like she couldn't let Billy in you know for good reason you know but still before we knew that she struggled with trusting people she struggled with letting with letting herself be known by people as well because she's always been this either famous victim or tragic figure that needed protection she didn't really want anyone to protect her she wanted to just be by herself or be able to just have a normal life without being 
persecuted by the the ghost of her mother's murder, by the ghost of the tragedy of Woodsboro, by all her friends who were murdered in front of her, potentially, you know, the way that she carries her guilt because of her. Mm -hmm. So just, and even like, even being able to watch a movie feels quite significant for Sydney. Being able to watch a movie with people who know her, who are not going to bring up Woodsboro all the time, who are not going to bring up all the killings all the time, feels like a massive closing chapter for the character. Mm-hmm. And is there a little romance there between her and the 100%. What is Detective Dishy doing in this <laughs> gathering? What is he doing? Why is he there? Let's... Why? Why? Yeah. Why? There's only one reason why. There's only one reason. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Unprofessional? A little bit. <laughs> a step up from Derek? Most definitely. <laughs> yeah. Even just the creepiness gives him actual character. Yes. <laughs> he's, he's her type, you know, a bit yeah. creepy. Yeah. Uh, yeah, exactly. But probably, you know, maybe doesn't sing in public as badly. <laughs> yeah. Let's hope. But guys, I think we might have covered everything about Scream 3. Does that mean it's time for the Screamies? It is time for the annual 2000 Screamies. <laughs> It's our little golden Ghostface Awards, a quickfire round where we discuss our favourite moments from Scream 3. So, to kick off the Screamies, what was the scariest moment for you? For me, we've mentioned it already, but it's Sydney's creepy ghost mother at the window. That was like a genuinely... I'm always freaked out by ghost stories and ghost movies, and that for me had a real supernatural horror vibe, which I love. I'm going to agree with you there. I think so, yeah. Although, shout out to the opening sequence where I do think it's scary, the fact that you think it's your boyfriend on the other side of a door, but it's actually not. And it's someone wants, wants yes. to kill you. That's actually scary. And Leah Schreiber does an amazing job of sounding suddenly really scary in that because it's his voice, obviously. Mm-hmm. You know, it's great. I think that that first opening scene, especially kind of from, from his girlfriend's point of view, when she's locked herself in the bathroom and it's this, you know, sweet voice and then it turns really menacing and then it turns really aggressive and the door sounds pounding. I think that's a very, very scary moment. And we get a shower. We get a shower yes. scene. Yes. Which is we've only actually had in Stab yes. in the Scream franchise because that's so we get our we get our horror shower sequence there too. We do. Yeah. And what about the best kill of Scream Three? There are actually so many and a lot we haven't even mentioned yet, right? But I'm going to go for Jenny McCarthy's character, right? Sarah Darling, who uh, is killed in sort of Roman's office in the studio. But there's this wonderful moment when she walks into the wardrobe department and there are hundreds of ghost faces. Oh, so good. And of course, one of them in there, in amongst these costumes, is the real ghost face. And um, it's a really fun little set piece, I think. I'm going to go with smells the gas. That was so much fun. (laughs) This is the man exploding in the mansion. Yeah. Yes, I think that was my favorite one because again, it's such a it's such a stupid death in so many ways. But at the same time, it's also a very unghostface like kill. Very. Yeah. 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 It's very branching out. Yeah. Exactly. He's evolving. Also, shout out to Parker Posey's death as well, which kind of happens behind a two-way mirror, which I thought was quite fun as well, where they can sort of hear it happening but they can't see what's going on. That's fun. And we've mentioned already that this film introduces so many new characters, but who was your favourite new character introduced in Scream 3? Can we all say her ca- the actress's name at the same time? Yes. <laughs> Let's do it. Three, two, one. Parker, Parker Posey. Posey. Obviously. Of course it is, yeah. I think my favourite Parker Posey moment is when she... Um, people leave her house and her bodyguard is there. And she just... With just a single look, without saying anything, she just jumps into his arms to be held <laughs> yeah. like a baby. <laughs> and I can fully imagine that they do this every day. Yeah, yeah. Also, shout out to the name that uh, the security guard calls Dewey, which is Dewdrop, which I love. Yeah. <laughs> Dewdrop. Dewdrop. <laughs> oh, God, it's the most emasculating moment for Dewey. Bless him. Um, what about... Out of the many, many cameos in Scream 3, which was the best one for you? I'm going to say Carrie Fisher. Uh-huh. I mean, oh, I know. the One of the people talking to uh, John Milton, producer, one of the studio heads, is Roger Corman. Yes! Right. Yes. Uh, loved that one. Loved seeing Roger Corman. Oh, I think like, you're going to yell at me for this. Jan, Helen, Bob for me. No! Of course. <laughs> oh, Anna. 
I know I had completely forgotten that they did a little cameo in Scream 3 so when they popped up I genuinely thought I had put in a different movie it suddenly feels like you were in a different movie <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah it's just the most nonsensical Hollywood cameo and I'm, I'm here for it you know let them pop up and Gail Weathers flips them off yeah it's yeah. perfect it's perfect <laughs> and what about our main trio what are their kind of best moments in this film what's the best Sydney Gale and Dewey moment I mean for Sydney I always like her kind of big heroic moments at the end I love it when she pulls out her little secret gun from her shoe or something (laughs) doesn't she and she says it's your turn to scream and then shoots her awful half brother (laughs) I like like that moment yeah her fury at him yeah Yeah. literally her fury at him just make just make this stop I, yeah, I think yeah. that's that whole sequence is great. I think it's her dismissal of his of his villain speech. She's like, I'm, I don't need it, save it. I don't care. And Gail and Dewey, I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be sentimental and say I like it when he proposes to her at the Aww. end. Yeah, <laughs> I think, I think for me is when Gail gets jealous because of Parker Posey. Mm-hmm. That's beautiful because we've never really seen Gail care that much about Dewey. Like, and she says, Dewey, you're not just here because of that. Kmart straight to video second rate version of me are you I mean that's good that's a good put down (laughs) okay so we're going to finish with our Scream 2022 predictions and this week's question I want to ask you as we know as we've discussed with Scream 3 particularly all of these movies so far in some way link to Maureen Prescott hugely important in the Scream saga do we think Maureen Prescott will also play an important role in some way in Scream 2022 it's interesting, isn't it? Because mm. now we're going back to Woodsboro. The potential for that is higher mm. than a, than obviously Scream Four changes things again. But I think mm, I I'd like it to. I'd I'd like more lower link, linking, mm. even yeah. if it's tenuous. <laughs> I want more lower linking. Yeah. I think what I'd like is to see Sydney in a place where she has come to terms with the with the many lives of her mother of Maureen that she that it is not a black and white scenario and that she has acknowledged who Maureen what Maureen was and she's fine with it so she doesn't it doesn't consume her in the same way as it has in the previous films that would be nice Uh, well not long to go right a couple more weeks and we can finally head to cinemas to see Scream 2022 I cannot wait So we've been to high school, we've been to college, we've been on a movie set. But on the internet, where can people find more of your work online? That was a beautiful segue. I loved (laughs) it. I loved it so much. I worked for all of five seconds on it. Yeah, it's wonderful. Uh, You can find me on Twitter at shiny underscore demon, where I hopefully have links to my episodes of Sound of Gaming on BBC Radio 3, where you can listen to some gaming soundtracks, and also my work on Games Radar, T3 and NME. And you can find my podcast, Evolution of Horror, which is a weekly horror film discussion podcast, uh, wherever you get your podcast, and you can find us there on Twitter at evolution pod and you can follow me on twitter at anna be demented and i occasionally haunt mike's podcast evolution of horror as well and host my own weekly horror podcast the final girls and you can find it everywhere where podcasts can be found and this has been it for the third episode of hello sydney next week we're jumping forward a full decade to discuss scream 4 well, it's all so predictable there's no element of surprise you can see everything coming ah! Hello Sydney is produced by Mike Munzer and Anna Bogutskaya for Paramount Pictures. The show is hosted by Louise Blaine, Anna Bogutskaya and Mike Munzer. And it's edited by Mike Munzer. Celebrate the 25th anniversary of Scream in 4K. Available to download and keep on Apple. Scream 3 from 2000 was directed by Wes Craven and produced by Dimension Films, Comrade Pictures, Craven Madalena Films and Miramax.